Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and goodness in this place. We thank you for leading us in worship and in prayer and intercession. We thank you now for leading us through the scriptures. For, for God, we, we want your words in us. We want them to resonate in us beyond just the moments we have together, but as we go from this place. So would you bring revelation? Would you bring insight? Would you let the light illuminate and dispel all darkness? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week we started a series on, called Life in the Balance. It's a series on the book of Romans. And it really kind of, we jumped into the deep end last week with, uh, with chapter one. And Romans is an incredible book. And over the last 2,000 years, it has been used by God and by His Spirit to do so many incredible things in the lives of people. And John Calvin, one of the role, major role players in the Protestant Reformation, he said this, he said, if a man understands Romans, he is a sure road open to him to understand the entire Bible. And so we're trying to unlock what the Apostle Paul says about the gospel in the book of Romans, because it is essentially the basic handbook for Christianity. Major theological issues addressed in the book of Romans, and so I, I'm, I'm so excited that because I think it's important for you to understand it, and I want your faith to begin to rise as we study through this book, because the book of Romans has literally changed history. It's literally changed history. People like Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, they all were involved in great moves of God based out of the book of Romans. A great Swiss Bible commentator says it this way. He says, every great revival in history that ever started can somehow be related to this book. And so my prayer is that you and I will go through this series and that we are going to open our hearts that we're going to study diligently, uh, and I want you to read it along with me. Read this book of Romans, and just as God's used this book time and time again throughout human history, that he would come in our time, in this moment, in our setting, in our city, in our church, and shift people who are stuck, stuck in a rut, shift people who really have a sort of a, a spiritual weakness and they, they need to be stronger in their faith, to shift people who feel frustrated with the world around them, to shift people who are hurting and need healing. I think that's what God wants to do. He wants to start a revival in our hearts. And who knows what he can do once that begins. And so as we go through this book, I want you to read it. I want you to pray. And Paul, of course, he jumps right in in chapter 1 and uh, right into the deep end of the social and theological controversy. And he uh, begins to deal in Romans 1 with justice and mercy. And last week we talked about this. We talked about how God is 100% just. He is perfectly just. He has perfect justice, but he also has perfect mercy. And that seems very... Uh, it seems filled with tension for us because we don't, we don't understand how that really works. But if we understand that when we're wronged, when we're hurt, when we're mistreated, when we're abused, every one of us wants justice. And that is not necessarily uh, a quality that is ungodlike. 
because God is a God of justice. And so we want the other, the other, we want people to pay who have heard, hurt us. And the reality is that person typically should pay. Those who've been abused, those who've been violated, those who have afflicted people with wickedness, with their actions towards others. I mean, listen, here's the struggle. The gospel is about God pouring out his justice on Jesus Christ himself. Somebody has to pay for the sinfulness, the, the, the violations and, and Jesus was willing to do that. When I am, have been thinking and praying about these families that are suffering in grief in Parkland, Florida, as we, as we just prayed for them during our worship time, I, I, I'm just so aware of the justice that is required for the loss of life, for the taking of life, for wickedness perpetrated on those parents and on those families and the trauma that people are experiencing, there is, a, there is a real issue there. But I want to draw your attention to the tension that exists between justice and mercy. If you think about this kid, this confused soul who murdered these, these teenagers, most of them about 14 years old, and you... Peel back the layers of his story, which people are doing right now. And you realize that his story is filled with trauma. That his mother died in November. That his father had died before that. That he was living with people that just allowed him to have a place. That he's described as an outcast and a strange guy by his classmates. That he sits at the outcast table, as one student quoted it. That he lived in a world where he suffered. Now I want you to pause for a second, and I want you to take this one heinous crime, and I want you to remove it from his story because it's part of his story now. But if you removed it from his story, and I told you his story and his history, and how police came to their home 39 times over the last seven years, and I, to and I told you this story about his parents dying and him not having a place and him being isolated and him being an outcast, and I removed this one decision, you'd want mercy for him. The tension between mercy and justice is massive. Now, he did do this. He did violate this. And he will get justice. And I pray that he meets Jesus somehow along the way. I pray that. But I want you to see how hard, how conflicting these dynamics are and how we get trapped. And, and I want you to realize that when you have a secret, when you have a secret in your life, 
When you've done something you're so ashamed of, you've done something you, you wished, you wished that you could invent time travel so you could go back and erase it. The very worst mistake of your life, you wish you could go back and fix it. When you have a secret sin that's in your life and you, you want something entirely different than justice, don't you? You want mercy. These things are not easy to talk about. And, but I don't think we should shy away from hard and difficult subjects. I think God has a way that he wants to demonstrate his truth and his good news in the midst of the, the, the sense of loss. In this, this sense of we can't figure this thing out. What should we do? How should we proceed? What, is, what can we do to deal with this complicated mess that we live in as humanity? We talked about the issues of God's wrath. We talked about godlessness and wickedness. If you want to hear it, you can go to the podcast at onechapel.com and, um, and you can listen to it. Um, this week, we're going to plunge into the second chapter. But, but before we do that, I want you to see that Paul is writing this book and it's really helpful if you see that he's kind of creating this picture of a courtroom. That he's in a courtroom and he's, in, in this book, he's laying out evidence like he's in a courtroom scene. And the, the case of this courtroom scene is mankind's guilt or innocence before God. And you can see it in your notes there. The charge is that mankind has deliberately rejected God. The prosecutor is Paul himself and the accused is all of humanity and the defense well, the Apostle Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 1 that mankind is without excuse. So Paul's laying out the evidence, and it's important for you to see this. At the end of chapter 1, the gavel comes down, and the verdict is declared guilty, guilty on all counts of godlessness and on all counts of wickedness. But as we enter into chapter 2, the Apostle Paul imagined people reading the evidence report, uh, evidence report on mankind's guilty verdict of godlessness and wickedness and then people thinking to themselves, wait a minute, that's not me. I haven't done any of those wicked things. I'm a decent law-abiding citizen. I'm a respectable person. I believe in God. So he anticipated you reading through chapter 2 and listening to me. If that's the way you feel today, Romans 2 is for you. Here we go. Romans 2 verse 1, it says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Now, the key to this section is in the first verse, and it's the word judgment. Judgment. That's your first fill in the blank there on your notes. Verse 1 says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment. <laughs> now, that word judgment here, it doesn't mean, or right, it doesn't mean to evaluate 
analyze, discriminate, or be discerning. That's, a, that's not the, the right use of that term. Those, this word judgment in the original Greek language is the word krinio, which literally means to condemn, to sentence, and to pass a verdict. To condemn, to sentence, to pass a verdict. It's done, it's over, there is no other chance. That's what this word means. When you look at another person and you say, oh, it's over for them, they have no, they have no chance. It's settled, they're, they're losers. When you look at someone else and you judge them, that's what it means. And so think about it this way. Think about this courtroom scene that the Apostle Paul has created. God is judge, he's pronounced the verdict verdict of guilty on all humanity but then <laughs> you jump out of your seat <laughs> and uh, in the courtroom audience and you come up to the front you rush up to the judge's seat and you take your gavel in your own hand you take his gavel <laughs> and you say now wait a minute i'm not guilty <laughs> and you say gary he's guilty <laughs> he's guilty because boom, and you say the reason and brian he's guilty He's guilty and you talk about the reason. But not me, I'm not guilty. If your name is Gary and Brian, I apologize. (laughs) See, friends, when we pass judgment on others, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying we're doing. We're stepping out of the courtroom audience. We're putting ourselves in the position of the judge. The Apostle Paul says when we do that, when when we put ourselves... In the position of judging others, it will eventually destroy our lives. And here's why. Because we don't have the capacity as human beings to carry the weight of perfect justice and perfect mercy. We have to rely on somebody else to do that. We don't have the capacity as human beings to act as God and to judge others. Last week we talked about parents and how I've, I, I've, I've many times been an imperfect parent in dispensing, dispensing justice and mercy. But God is perfect at it. When we try to engage in it, it ends up destroying us. And that word, the word that describes us when we do that is self-righteous. Self-righteous. And here's how it sounds. I'm not so bad. This is, I mean, I'm okay, right? <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a major sinner. <laughs> right? I haven't killed anyone. I have a few faults and a few weaknesses, but nothing like Gary. <laughs> I'm doing just fine. So here in the first four verses, the Apostle Paul gives us four characteristics of the self-righteous person. Here it is. Number one, the self-righteous person accuses others and excuses himself. The self-righteous person accuses others and excuses himself. Verse one says, you therefore have no excuse. (laughs) You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Whatever you said others do, you've done them. You see, it's typical human nature to be unrealistic about ourselves, isn't it? Right? It's easy to fall into judging others by their actions, but judging ourselves by our motives. So easy to fall into that. 
everybody else is guilty. I'm innocent. Everybody else is at fault, but I'm not at fault. And if I was at fault, I didn't mean to. So what do we do? We end up, here's what we do. We end up relabeling our sins. Relabeling. We call them something else. I don't gossip. I'm just sharing a concern. I'm not critical. I'm just discerning. I'm not lazy. I'm just laid back. I'm not negative. I'm, I'm just realistic. That's kind of my favorite. Because my wife's an optimist. I'm a, I like to call myself a realist, but we all know that realists are only pessimists because no one wants to be known as a pessimist. I'm not unreliable. I'm just flexible. I'm not really judging. I'm, I'm just inspecting a fruit. We tend to condemn these things in other people, but yet when it comes to ourselves, we say it's not wrong. It's not us. It's just my personality. You ever heard that one? Stop using that. You know what all these personality tests, all these temperament tests, you know what they're for? It's so that you can work better with other personalities, not so you can make excuses about yours. That's why you take those assessments. But I digress. You say, that's just the way I am. That's just the way it is. Listen, the self-righteous person accuses others and excuses themselves. Excuses himself. Second characteristic the Apostle Paul highlights here is the self-righteous person measures by the wrong standard. Self-righteous person, person measures by the wrong standard. Verse 2, he says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. The self-righteous person compares others to himself. Compares others to himself, compares himself to others. And, and it sounds a little bit like this. Well, at least I'm better than Gary. <laughs> the problem here, however, is that we're blind to the truth. It blinds us to the truth, which is the standard. See, one chapel, all of us have blind spots. All of us. Areas of weaknesses that we don't see. I don't see my own weaknesses. You don't see your own weaknesses. So many times we don't see where we're at fault. We only see where other people are at fault. And the ironic thing is that we tend to judge others in areas that we dislike in ourselves. If I have a problem with pride, then I'm going to be very quick to judge people who are full of pride. If I'm lazy, then I'll be very quick to judge people who are lazy. That's just our nature. So be careful how harsh you are on people for certain sins. I love Oswald Chambers. Brilliant writer. Here's how he described it. I'm going to read you this passage. I want you to listen closely. Jesus' instructions with regard to judging others is very simply put. He says, don't. 
The average Christian is the most piercingly critical individual known. Criticism is one of the ordinary activities of people, but in the spiritual realm, nothing is accomplished by it. The effect of criticism is the dividing up of the strengths of the one being criticized. The Holy Spirit is the only one in the proper position to criticize, and he alone is able to show what is wrong without hurting and wounding. It is impossible to enter into fellowship with God when you are in a critical mood. Criticism serves to make you harsh, vindictive, and cruel, and leaves you with the soothing and flattering idea that you are somehow superior to others. Jesus says that as his disciple, you should cultivate a temperament that is never critical. This will not happen quickly, but must be developed over a span of time. You must constantly beware of anything that causes you to think of yourself as a superior person. There is no escaping the penetrating search of my life by Jesus. If I see the little speck in your eye, it means that I have a plank of timber in my own. Every wrong thing that I see in you, God finds in me. Every time I judge, I condemn myself. Stop having a measuring stick for other people. He says, there is always at least one more fact which we know nothing about in every person's situation. The first thing God does is to give us a thorough spiritual cleaning. After that, there is no possibility of pride remaining in us. I have never met a person I could despair of or lose all hope for after discerning what lies in me apart from the grace of God. The Apostle Paul is saying here we measure people, other people, by the wrong standard. The third characteristic the Apostle Paul highlights of a self-righteous person is a self-righteous person thinks judging creates superiority. In other words, we think it puts us in a better position with God. Verse 3 says, so when you a mere man, I love how he does that. <laughs> when you a mere man pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? See here, I think one of the reasons why we like to judge others is to feel better. We want to feel better. We want to look more superior. We, 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 we. It makes me feel, makes me look like I'm not so bad when I judge other people, when I compare myself with others, when I evaluate them in a way that is critical. And you're having a hard time. I could hear it, the wheels turning in your brain. Like, what criti criticism? You're, because you live in an American culture, we've all made our peace with criticism. We think that criticism is good for us. It helps us grow. It helps us, it hel it helps us see reality. What you're not understanding is that what criticism actually is is a, is a way of judging people. And, 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 and we're called to speak the truth of God in love. That's a, in, kind of an entirely different thing than just criticizing people or judging them. It's, if you think about it, it's horrible logic.
to think that you can get in a better position with God or that you can lift yourself up by really pushing other people down, right? That's kind of what the Apostle Paul's describing. Think about it this way. Let's say you and I both owe money to the same man. You're in debt 20 million and I'm only in debt 10 million. And so I say, well, since you're in more debt than I am, therefore I'm free from debt. Debt doesn't have a hold on my life. Does that make sense? No, of course it doesn't make sense. Just because I owe less money than you doesn't negate my own indebtedness. See, people, somehow we think that by judging others, we're putting ourselves in a, in a better position in our own minds when we're going to all stand before God himself who is the only perfect judge, the only perfect one. And here's the, here's the truth. Here's the, here's the thing you need to get. God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't grade on the curve, people. Apostle Paul says, don't think that by pointing out other people's sins, you're off the hook. Ever heard it said this way? Anytime you point your finger and judge somebody else, you got three pointing right back at you. The fourth characteristic the Apostle Paul highlights of self-righteous person is they misinterpret God's blessing. A self-righteous person misinterprets God's blessing. Verse 4 says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Now look at this, church. The Apostle Paul says that a self-righteous person shows contempt. That word contempt in the original Greek language is the word Cataphroneo. <laughs> I did pretty good at that. Which means, here's what it means, to treat it lightly, to have low regard for, to take it for granted. See, church family, so many people presume on God's goodness. They presume on His goodness. They take it for granted. It's the attitude of, well, everything's going to be great. Everything is going great. Therefore, God must think I'm great. Everything's going smooth. Therefore, I must be in with God. Everything's cool. What I'm doing must not be so bad because life is pretty great. God is blessing me. You see, the self-righteous person thinks he deserves God's blessing. But here's the mistake, because when what the self-righteous person doesn't realize is that it's all about God's grace. It's all about God's grace. And if God gave us what we deserved, we wouldn't even be here. And so the Apostle Paul is saying here that we misinterpret God's blessing. We think that since everything is fine, therefore I must be without sin. But listen to me, people. The Bible teaches us that God blesses our lives even when there is sin. What? Some of you are like, no, when life is bad, that means God's bad. God's mad. See, you're, you're stuck in some of that thinking. That's not what the Bible teaches. God's goodness and blessing, the good news of Jesus, <laughs> is that you don't have to suffer for your own sinfulness. Now, you may suffer, but Jesus himself joins us, joins you in that suffering. 
That's what he did when he came to the cross. There's something that happens here. God, the thing you have to get is God blesses even when there is sin, and he does it because of mercy and grace. I don't know about you, but this is what is so amazing to me. Because God knows everything about me. He, he, he's still so patient with me. He knows everything about me, but he's still so loving. He knows everything about me, but he's still so forgiving. Your pastor has many problems. And God knows every one of them. He knows all my hang-ups. He knows my fears. And he knows yours too. He knows everything about us, and yet he's waiting, he's ready. When we turn to Jesus, there is something that's poured out on us. That's why the apostle's saying is that our attitude should be one of knowing we didn't get what we deserved. Our attitude should be knowing that we don't get what we deserved, which means until we really, really grasp our need for God, We'll continue to think that we're okay. I'm not so bad. At least I'm better than Gary. <laughs> Poor Gary. Now, final story. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. And then Jesus answered his thoughts. Oh, I love Jesus. He answers his thoughts. <laughs> Simon replied, oh, Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. I want you to realize that the story is not about the woman. She had an experience with a man that changed all of her previous and prior experiences with men in her life. Jesus himself. She had an encounter with him that rescued her, dignified her, validated her, loved her, welcomed her without expecting anything in return. And this Pharisee is sitting across the table and he's judging her 
And he's not only judging her, he's judging Jesus. He's saying, if this guy were real, if this guy were the real deal, he'd know that this person is sinful and she shouldn't be touching his feet like that. That's totally inappropriate. By the way, that's how religious people gauge everything. What's appropriate and what's not appropriate. The story is not about the woman. She was pouring out her love and heart on Jesus himself and he was forgiving her sins. The story is about the Pharisee who didn't realize how much he'd been forgiven. Who didn't understand what this grand idea of grace and love is about. The man is trapped in religion. He's trapped in a world of do's and don'ts. He's trapped without the revelation of God's perfect justice and perfect mercy of which he is the beneficiary through Jesus Christ. The woman had a revelation of Jesus. Simon had no such revelation. Jesus' solution for self-righteous judgment, you know what it is? It's gratitude. It's gratitude that you have been forgiven. Consumed with gratitude for what God has done for you. It keeps you from looking down on others. It keeps you from judging others. You know what the definition of self-righteousness is? Thinking oneself faultless. In other words, I'm in and of myself, in right standing with God. I have done so many good things, and therefore I don't really need God to do anything for me. I do things for others. No, we need, desperately need God. That's why Jesus attacked more often, more severely, more directly than any other sin, the sin of self-righteousness. Because when we see ourselves as self-righteous, it, com it comes out in judgment. It causes us to be judgmental. When we're judgmental, in essence, we're putting ourselves in the role of God. And the Apostle Paul says, only God has the right to judge. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it's right there at the bottom of your notes. I want you to read it in the message translation. It says, don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not, you're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. We need to let go of our own confidence. Listen, we're all one sin away from ruining our lives. One decision away from your reputation changing everything. And we need to see ourselves that way. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. We're going to go to the Lord's table.